We're going to pick up with verse 17, but just uh, for some context at least, uh, remember <coughs> that Jesus had gone through uh, trials uh, before uh, the religious high priests of the day, Annas and Caiaphas, and then Pilate. Pilate did everything he could, uh, humanly speaking, to try to release Jesus, but that wasn't the plan. It wasn't God's plan. So there was no way he was going to be able to release Jesus. And so uh, at the end of that, when he basically gave up in verse 16, it says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we have just sung of you on the throne how glorious that we can look forward to that. You could have just stayed on that throne, which was yours to keep, but instead, you came. You lived a life without sin, and you died a death that you did not deserve to die, but we did. And so, Lord, as we read of this, will you teach us today? Not just information, but teach us of you, of what, what this means for us in our lives. For whether we know it or not, this, Lord, is our greatest need today. We may think there's other things that are even more important than that, but, but this truth puts everything in this life in perspective. And so we ask for this in the precious name of Jesus. 
Amen. Let's jump right in uh, to this passage, and you see that I have in, entitled the sermon and uh, this, this first section, uh, Via Dolorosa. And perhaps you've heard of that. It is the path over in Jerusalem that has uh, been uh, traditionally, at least, if not historically, the path that Jesus walked as he was heading toward the cross. Some churches and some pilgrims have made portions of that, stations of the cross and so on, holy places. There's nothing biblical about that. There's nothing magical about any of those places. But it is good to remember what that way of sorrows or, or way of suffering was like. And so we see the beginning of it in verse 17. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, when it says bearing his own cross, we may have the picture of, of, of Jesus under a cross like the one we have before us. But that's not really an accurate picture. Ultimately, it, it was a cross in that or a similar shape that he was crucified on. But what would take place in, in crucifixions is when, when there was one that was going to happen, and in this case there were three that were going to take place, they would in, implant the vertical pole wherever that was going to be. And then the prisoner that was to be crucified, that was to be executed, would carry the cross beam, the horizontal beam. And, and they were, that was a part of their, their torture. But depending on how much they had been beaten before that, it was not at all uncommon for them not to be able to carry it all the way to where they would be crucified. And that was the, the case here. And so they would recruit someone to carry it. The other Gospels tell us that uh, Simon of Cyrene, a bystander, was commanded by the soldiers to pick it up and carry it for Jesus to Golgotha. Now, that word Golgotha uh, was the Aramaic word, um, and I was thinking about this. I, I, I meant to ask Mark, and I'll ask him later, uh, since I put him on the spot here. I won't ask him now, but I don't, I don't really remember hymns where we sing about Golgotha. There may be some anthems, but, but usually in our hymns, the term that's used is Calvary, and we often Hear that? So where'd that come from? Well, Calvary is actually 
from the Latin word, from the Vulgate translation of the Bible. I know this sounds complicated, it's not. But it's the Latin word uh, for Golgotha. So it's interchangeable. Uh, if, you, if we sing about Calvary, we are singing about what this passage is talking about, about Golgotha. So where was Golgotha? Um, it says it's also called the place of the skull. Uh, here are the, the only things really that we're pretty certain of from the Gospels. Uh, that the place of the crucifixion was outside of the city. That, by the way, fulfilled prophecy and foreshadowing from the Old Testament. But it was also near the city. Um, we see in, in the passage that we, um, that we read today and in the sense that a lot of people would go by and gaze, and, and <clears throat> that was how they did crucifixions. They did them not just for punishment for the one being executed, but as an example so others would see them and, and it would, in their view, deter them from wanting to ever be in that position. So they would put it in a very uh, public place. So it would be near the city. Uh, probably from the Gospels on some kind of uh, a cone-shaped uh, uh, rock or uh, raised thing, probably not a mountain, uh, as we sometimes think of Mount Calvary. Uh, but it was also near the Lord's sepulcher, as we'll read down in, uh, in 1941, chapter 19, verse 41. It says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which uh, no one had yet been laid. So those are the things that, that we know. Now, if you go to Jerusalem uh, today, there is a church of the Holy Sepulcher that uh, uh, many feel like that's where it took place. And it, it was at that place, and they have built this huge structure over it. And here, again, is only my opinion, but it is a very gaudy scene in that church. In fact, when we visited it, I mean, it, it's big. You can take tours. There's, there's people all over the place. I literally walked in 10 or 15 steps. I looked around, and with the press of the people, with people kissing the floor where they thought the cross was, kissing icons, worshiping in, in, in various ways, many of them superstitious, and I turned around and walked back out and, and, and waited for the others on the tour. Um, some of them did, did similar things. Uh, so that's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But then there's another place. And it's, it's called the Garden Tomb. And that was probably my favorite place that we visited. It, it's a beautiful garden. 
we had a, a little lecture there about the, the, the place and, and so on. And in that garden is a hewn out tomb, a number of them, but, but one that you can walk in, obviously an empty tomb that you can walk in to see what the tombs were like. I had the privilege of speaking and serving co communion in that place to, to our group. Next to it, actually where we sat to hear the lecture, you could look over and you could see a rock that you could imagine might have looked like a skull to some, certainly from a distance. And it would have fit with the other things. Now, which is the authentic place? We don't know. And it could have been a, another place that, that, that we, we don't know at all. And that's not, that's not even the point. Uh, here we read, there they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Crucifixion was considered a particularly cruel and inhumane way of executing criminals, especially uh, by the Jews. It, it was looked upon with horror, as you can imagine. It was considered the same as hanging, which we read back in Deuteronomy, hanging on a, a tree, whoever is there, this is also quoted in Galatians, cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. So how appropriate that this one, though he was innocent, the scripture says, became a curse for us. That's what the crucifixion was. Now, with all the attention that Christians and, and uh, give to the crucifixion, and especially if, if you ever see a movie when we get toward Easter, uh, the movies will be on, and, and that will be a big part of it. And understandably, because that's, that's something that can be dramatized but we're, we're, we, we seem to be very, very familiar with the physical part of what went on on the cross, which caused me, when I, when I uh, looked at this passage, to be fascinated that it simply says in three words, they crucified him. That's it. The pain, the awful torture of the physical crucifixion that took place. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And then it says, with two others. It doesn't say uh, who these two others were. Some speculate, and I think this makes sense, it's, it's simply a theory, but some speculate they may have been associates of Barabbas, uh, they might have been convicted with him, which would make sense that we have Jesus in the middle where their leader, 
the leader of these two others would have been, where Barabbas would have been. Perhaps that's the case. And then we see in verse 19 the inscription. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. So typically, uh, over the one who's being crucified, it would say what the crime was. Why? He was being crucified so that those passing by, if they didn't know anything about the trial or anything else, they would see this one's being crucified. They would know what their crime was, what that person's crime was. And as I said, it would be a deterrent uh, from that crime. So in Jesus' case, it seems Pilate either wrote it himself or had it uh, written Specifically, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He's saying, here's his crime. He's the King of the Jews. Look what happens to the King of the Jews. Now notice he wrote in, in Hebrew, which would be the language of the Jews. In Greek, which was the, the common language of the day, Koine Greek, uh, after Alexander conquered everyone, people all over the Roman Empire spoke uh, uh, Greek, and then in Latin, which would be the language of the Roman soldiers who were there as well. So the Jewish authorities are upset. They said, don't don't say this is. Say he says he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate simply says, and we don't know what his motivation for that was. What I wrote, I wrote, period. That's what's going to stay there. Now, our passage, uh, I, I want us to go back and, and drill a little deeper on, on a couple of things that really, uh, frankly, are barely mentioned here in John, but to get a fuller picture, uh, we look at the other Gospels. Um, and the first thing is the two that he was crucified between. If uh, we look over in Luke chapter 23, we can see more about them. It says this, two others in uh, Luke 23 verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, here's what happened according to Luke. We see the first thief, verse uh, 39 of Luke 23. One of the criminals 
who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, that is basically a similar, basically the same thing that was being shouted at him from the ground, from many who were in the crowd shouting at him. He didn't answer the crowd. He's not going to answer this thief. What an awful question, right? Let me suggest that many of us, if not all of us, need to be careful that we don't basically say the same thing to Jesus. Let me put it in different words. I don't like my situation here, God. So if you're there, get me out of this. Does that sound a little more familiar? either from some of your prayers or those of people that you know. Maybe, maybe for you, uh, uh, that, that's the prayer when you get the diagnosis and the prognosis from your doctor that you didn't want to hear. Or maybe when you feel like your, your marriage is falling apart or a relationship is is falling apart or your child has rejected Christ or even praying for a loved one who's dying. It's not wrong to pray for any of those things. I want you to hear that. It's not wrong to pray about any of those things. But it becomes wrong when it is the prayer of one who wants Jesus for what he can do for them. You get it? Yeah, Jesus, I really want you if you'll get me off this cross or if you'll fix what's going on in my life. Then I want you. And I have to say, Some of you may be doubtful about Jesus today because you've prayed that prayer and he didn't answer it the way you wanted. We need to know. First of all, I want to tell you, if that's you, I'm glad you're here. But we need to know that he's not going to answer that. Not in that way. He didn't for the crowd. He didn't for the thief. He will not be used. And that's what this thief wanted of him. And here's what he, the the, the thief didn't understand, and we sometimes don't understand, but certainly the thief didn't about him coming off the cross, that his only hope was if Jesus stayed on the cross. 
That was his only hope. And the problem for us with with prayer is that we can't look at the whole situation and see what's best for us. We We don't necessarily know what's best for us. Only he does. So if if Jesus had answered that thief's prayer and he had had come down, it would have caused untold misery for the penitent thief, for the people on the ground, and for us. He didn't come down. They said, save others, he saved others, let him save himself. He saved us because he didn't save himself. He had to stay on the cross. Now contrast that thief with the second thief in Luke 23, verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. The impenitent thief, the other thief, acknowledged nothing about what he did that got him in that position. Even though he had broken the law, he wants to get off. The penitent thief says, absolutely, look, I deserve this. And he says to the other thief, you do too. In fact, the only thing that should change about this scene is there should only be two crosses up here because Jesus doesn't deserve to be here. So what we see is there's a whole crowd of people. There's an impenitent thief. There's a, a, a penitent thief. And there's Jesus and, and the only one that gets it, that gets Jesus, is this one thief, the penitent one. Why? Because God had enlightened his heart. On the cross, God showed him who Jesus was. What had he used? We don't know. But we do know that he had heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He had heard him forgive the ones that were murdering him. He knew he was innocent. And then this is incredible. He says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. What's incredible is that he thinks Jesus has a future. Why would he think that? He's there. He's in agony, this penitent thief. He's in agony. He is dying. He knows he's going to die. 
He, he sees Jesus right next to him. He knows he's going to die too because he's already refused to come down from the cross. But he believes he has a future. I don't think the thief really understood all of it. But God somehow enlightened him to know that the, the door to paradise, the door to the kingdom was right next to him. He'd been given a new heart. And he understood that his only hope was to admit he couldn't save himself. So that thief doesn't ask to get off of the cross. He doesn't even ask for paradise. He just says, remember me when you get, get to your kingdom. The impenitent thief says, I want you to save my skin. I don't, I don't, I'm not worried about my soul. The penitent thief says, I'm not even worried about my skin. Just save me. Most of us tend to come to God like the impenitent thief. I got a problem. You need to fix it. But if the Spirit of God really and truly opens your eyes like he did the eyes of the, the penitent thief, you'll say, you know what? I, I probably deserve these problems. I deserve worse, maybe. But I need you. And that's what the, that thief did. He, he didn't say, free me from the consequences of what I did in this life. He says, free me from my breaking of your law. And that's the difference. So here's what we learn about Jesus. If, if the thief could be saved just like that, never got to church, never went through an inquirer's class, never got baptized, didn't have a chance to clean up his life. All he had was Jesus. If he could be saved with all, without all that other, so can you. Whatever you have done, Whatever your life has looked like, you can come to Jesus. Jesus is on the cross. We see the suffering. But I want us to understand this, that the physical suffering on the cross was awful. It was horrendous. It was inhumane. And we should never forget it. We should never get used to it. I, I, I noticed today, even in hymns we sing, it, you can talk about Jesus the crucified and just, just almost skim right over it if you don't notice. We should never forget the physical agony he went through. But we need to understand that Jesus' greatest pain was not physical. 
his greatest pain was the wrath of his father that was poured out on him on the cross for that thief, for those who have gone before him, who were looking forward to a Messiah, and for all of those who would trust in Christ alone down through the centuries, and for we in this room who are trusting in him alone, that's why he was on the cross. And his greatest pain was that he suffered the pain of hell for eternity for us on that cross. And he did it out of love. He purchased the gift of salvation for us. Good news? Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Jesus the crucified, we thank you that when you could have taken yourself off of that cross, when you could have turned away at any point, when you could have not even come to this world, you chose to do all of those things out of love for us. On that cross, you knew us by name. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. Amen. Hope you'll speak to one another before you leave the sanctuary, and especially uh, make sure you welcome our, our new members as well. And if you're uh, visiting with us, I'll be at the front door. If it's your first visit with us, let me know that. And if you'd like more information, we've, we've got those at, at both entrances. Uh, so children of the living God, will you reach out and receive the Lord's benediction? And now may the peace of Christ, he who died, he who lives, he who is before the Father for us, may it rest in your hearts forever. And God's people said, Amen.